So today we have my first live podcast officially in Seattle with Brett Weinstein. I introduced Brett on stage, but Brett is the biologist who was at the center of the Evergreen scandal, which you may have heard about. We don't go into as much detail as we might have because Evergreen is just an hour outside of Seattle, and many people in the audience were well aware of what happened there. It did make national news, and it was the most visible, apart from what happened to Nicholas Christakis at Yale, of these recent moral panics on college campuses. But briefly what happened there is they traditionally had what they called a day of absence, where people of color would stay away from campus for a day to make their their absence felt. And Brett, as an extremely liberal and progressive member of the biology department, was always in support of that. But last year they decided to flip the logic of this event. And rather than people of color deciding to stay away, they decided to tell white people that they were not welcome on campus on that day. Absence wasn't compulsory, but it was highly recommended. Now, Brett noticed immediately that this was not quite the same ethical and political message and said as much in an email to administrators and his colleagues. And then the witch hunt began. So uh, there's much more about that online, and you can see Brett's other interviews on other podcasts, like the Joe Rogan podcast. But suffice it to say, this was an extremely bizarre and unproductive self-immolation of a liberal student body. And Brett and his wife, also a professor there at Evergreen, have since been forced out. There was some settlement. We talk about it a little, but that's the, the necessary backstory to today's conversation. And now I bring you audio of the Seattle event with Brett Weinstein. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Harris. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out. I can't, I can't see you all, but I can hear you. And um, it, it really is an honor, I, I must say. I, I will never take this for granted. The fact that I can put a date on the calendar and you all show up, it's just insane to me. So thank you for doing that. And another thing I won't take for granted is that people like this actually want to talk to me. My guest tonight is an evolutionary biologist. He is uh, not that one. <laughs> Though I've released some audio from those, those events with Richard Dawkins, you should know this is actually my first official live podcast. So you guys made it to the, the start of the tour. But my guest tonight is a biologist who focuses on big questions. He really, he's, he's done narrow research on things like the, the evolution of cancer and, and senescence and moral self-sacrifice, but he also focuses on how an understanding of evolution can, can actually inform our lives and, and improve society, and we'll, we'll get into all of that. He's also become, in the aftermath of what is now known as the Evergreen Scandal, a, a, a truly wise and articulate defender of human rationality and free speech. So please welcome Brett Weinstein. 
Thanks, Brett. Good to see Thanks you. for coming. So, Brett, Brett, I've been wanting to talk to you for some time. As some people here must know, I'm, I'm friends with your brother, who did my podcast about a year ago. And, you know, your brother is, is this polymathic, very articulate, very interesting man. And then I, I saw a bit of you on YouTube, and you are also this polymathic, very articulate, interesting man. So your, your parents did something right. I, <laughs> I want to I know what happened there. But welcome. Thank you for doing Thank this. You. Thanks for having me. So I, I think since we're in Seattle, the Evergreen scandal is probably a noun phrase that people recognize. But I, I think we should talk about what happened there because it's a, it's a point of entry into uh, many of the issues we're going to consider. I have actually seen it described by another name, the oh, Brett what? Weinstein debacle. Ah, well. so, um, yes, so uh, let me give you the very brief version. And I should say it's a story that's very easy to get wrong. And the press, even when they are well-intentioned, often get the story wrong. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the details of what actually happened, but I will say um, the, general, the general narrative is this. We hired a new president at the college. He set in motion a uh, committee um, to study the question of equity on our campus and to propose uh, some solutions to problems. And uh, that committee advanced a, an elaborate um, proposal sweeping changes to the college that was, in my opinion, a threat to the ability of the college to continue to function, certainly as an educa educational institution and maybe at all. It, it was a threat to our fiscal solvency, and I objected to it, which uh, was more or less part of my job as a faculty member, and I said, we really have to talk about this proposal, and there was steadfast refusal to have that discussion. And as I continued to insist um, that we have that discussion, it uh, raised the hackles of some other faculty members who became more and more aggressive uh, in challenging me in faculty meetings, accusing me of being anti-equity itself. Um, and then the next part is uh, hearsay, but I'm led to believe that uh, one faculty member in particular set a bunch of students in motion, students that I had never met, who arrived at my classroom and uh, erupted into protest, which disrupted the entire building. They demanded my resignation. And uh, instead of backing down or running away, I tried to reason with them. And when those videos were placed online by the protesters, um, the reaction was not what, they, what the protesters had expected the reaction was. Many people um, were, I guess, impressed that I had tried to talk to them rationally about um, the questions that were at the, at the heart of the, the equity issue on our campus. And so it backfired, and that set in motion uh, a, a debate about what the rights of people to protest are in the context of a college campus and what equity means and uh, how we might pursue it. And what was the reaction of, of your fellow faculty? How, how much support or lack of support did you get? Um, that's a very... Uh, interesting question. It looks very different on the inside of the college than the outside. Mm. On the inside, I got tremendous support from many people, but it was almost silent. And many of the people who were telling me that they were supportive were telling me that they wouldn't speak publicly about their position because they were afraid of what would happen. Mm. And in fact, they watched what happened to me, and I can't say that they were wrong. Yeah, although the word cowardice does come to mind. It's a word that I refused 
to use at first because I don't think their fears were unjustified and it's, you know, it's, hard, to, it's hard to judge other people in that way. But I, I will say... Although their, their fears were not unjustified if they came out one at a time or only one came out, but it's, it, there really is safety in numbers here. It's the fact that you were out there all alone that led to this... Um, this is exactly right, and I don't, I mean, I, maybe I do not. How, how do we solve this problem? Was it, this is, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking it's something that I've often said of the, of the Salman Rushdie affair. The reason why he had to go into hiding for 10 years, obviously, is a different circumstance, but the whole problem was that there weren't 10,000 Salman Rushdies the next day, and there, and there should have been. How do we get that collective response tuned up? Um, the answer is not an easy one, but people need to level up with respect to game theory. And so the colleagues who were opposed to these um, false and dangerous equity proposals um, were responding to their narrow short-term interests. In other words, they were correctly perceiving that they would be stigmatized and demonized and maybe driven out if they stood up. What they were not realizing was that that will come for them in the end anyway. And so it really isn't a question of whether or not to expose yourself to that danger. It's whether or not um, to group together and face that danger and maybe survive it or to expose yourself to being picked off one by one over time. And so there's a, a problem that I call the activist dilemma, which is really a version of a tragedy of the commons or a free rider problem in which um, the, everybody wants a problem solved, but the best deal is to stand on the sidelines and let somebody else take the, the risk or the cost of solving it and to get the benefit of that solution anyway. And in the end, that, that's the undoing of the coalitions that you're imagining should form right. to prevent these things. Seems like we could solve this with an app <laughs> the right app would just get everyone to go at the same moment. So what, what were the ideas at the core of this problem? What, what gave us the evergreen moral panic? Well, I think it has to do with a couple of different problems. I mean, I've, I've come to view the, the folks who protested at Evergreen as an insurgency, which to me means that you don't take them literally, that they are actually engaged in a tactical action. And what they say they are up to is not necessarily what even they believe that they are up to. They are trying to accomplish something, and they're actually quite powerful um, in, in doing what they're doing. Mm. So uh, the, it's, it's a little bit hard to know how you deal with a movement that says it is about certain objectives. For example, equity itself. Equity is something that most people, I'm sure most people in this auditorium, would imagine themselves to be in favor of equity. The problem is, if you, uh, if you build a rule into your personality where you say anything that is positive from the perspective of equity is therefore something that I am in favor of, then you can be easily manipulated because all that has to happen is somebody needs to wrap that label around something noxious and you may not detect until too late that... Uh, that it isn't what you signed up for. What's more, this sets the stage for your cognitive dissonance to be weaponized against you. Because once you've signed up, once you've protested in favor of something called equity, and then it turns out that it isn't what it was advertised as, you have a, uh, a predicament, which is do you admit that you were wrong 
to, uh, to favor this thing in the first place, or do you double down on protesting even further? And I've seen a lot of people who simply got involved in this movement because it was labeled in a way that sounded good to them um, continue to move in the wrong direction because at the point they begin to detect that it isn't what it's supposed to be, it's too late for them to figure out how to, how to back out. And what's the connection to biology here? Is it an accident that you happen to be a biologist or is there something about biology that presents an especially good target for this kind of confusion? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's no accident, I think. I've been teaching and thinking very deeply about questions about how groups compete with each other and uh, what, what role those game theoretic parameters and uh, predicaments have played in human history. And so really this, is, this particular instance was a variation on a theme and uh, was, it was quite plain to me what was going on. And the question is, could I make it plain to enough people who hadn't yet chosen sides to, uh, to avert a disaster? And the answer with respect to Evergreen is no. On the other hand, with respect to the outside world, it does appear that we have a much healthier conversation on that topic now than we did six months ago. I mean, there's topics here that I think we should touch because they're of such critical importance to our national conversation or our global conversation. And they're, they're topics that it seems like we should be able to talk about rationally and in a truly open-ended and open-minded way without becoming hysterical. But they, it's, it's, they, these, these topics so reliably produce hysteria that it's, I mean, every, it's just like everything's covered with plutonium. Let's talk about first the concept of race, right, which was at the, at the center of this disruption on campus. As a biological concept, is it, is it, is it a valid concept? Um, okay, we're about to get into yes. serious danger. Yes, you're here. about to get on Twitter. Um, yes. <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> um, well, I have actually, uh, yeah, I have changed my tune on this question. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not changed my understanding, but the term race is actually close to indefensible. And the reason that it's close to indefensible is not the one that we are told biology has unearthed. We are told that there is more variation within races than between races, and therefore races don't exist. That's nonsense. That actually mathematically essentially has to be true. It says nothing one way or the other about the reality of races. What does invalidate the concept of race is the way that concept has been used. So, for example, one-drop rules say something about what category you're in that is not in any way mathematical, right? If one drop of, of black blood makes you black, then this is not a biological concept we're talking about. It's a social concept. Um, so what I would so say... You're not in favor of the Nuremberg Laws? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I would say let's... I mean, I use the term race because it's the term people expect when you're having these conversations. And then when the conversations get technical, it causes a problem. Mm. The real... Uh, term that we should be using is population. Population is a biologically viable term, and we don't get into one-drop rule kind of uh, shenanigans surrounding it. So I would say, if you're having a technical conversation, recognize that race isn't the right concept and move to population, and then we can talk about what the meaning of population is. I would say there's a higher-level version of that term, too, which uh, is even more useful thinking evolutionarily, but has to be used with care, and that term is lineage. So a lineage is more useful because 
it is a fractal, meaning that it uh, exists independent of scale, at least over a certain range. And mm -hmm. so you and all of your descendants are a lineage. Your mother and all of her descendants, which includes the lineage we just talked about, is also a lineage, and we can step all the way back up the evolutionary tree of ancestry, and we can generate larger and larger, more inclusive lineages. And so what we call races are typically populations, and those populations are one level in that hierarchy that is important in human history. That said, not every one of these is actually a lineage or a population. So what happened uh, in Rwanda with uh, Hutus and Tutsis was in large measure artificial. Those were not actual um, lineages in any biologically meaningful sense. They were arbitrary based on phenotypic characteristics that may or may not have tracked lineage. Mm. So is a family a similar concept to race or lineage here? There is actually no clear boundary between a family and the rest of, of the species. Well, family is not technically a lineage. So you and your wife and all of your descendants are not a lineage because the common ancestor between you and your wife is not included. But that's right, yeah. not... Yeah, I guess biologically related. Yes, right. essentially the, the, the theme of what you're saying is right. That yeah. as we step up to larger and larger collections of related individuals, what we have are larger and larger lineages which function like families. They evolve in the same way that families are capable of because they're related to each other. In a, in a genetically precise way, but the borders aren't necessarily um, easily defined. And, and there's no easily defined borders of a species either. There was no first human. Well, there is a most recent common ancestor of all humans. Yeah. There logically has to be. Right. Um, that does not mean that that was the first human in any sense that if you were standing there to observe this person that you, would, you could recognize them as such. But um, the important thing to realize is... For some reason, we have a, a bias. We tend to think that evolutionary dynamics ought to function in ways that make them easily tractable, that make them comprehensible to us. And that's, there's no reason that that has to be true. And you picked the perfect example. We cannot define species in a way that, is, that recovers all of the things that we think we mean when we use that term. And it actually becomes particularly broken when we get near human beings. But the fact that we can't define species is of no consequence one way or the other to evolutionary dynamics. They are evolving and lineages are diverging into, uh, into sub-lineages that ultimately can't interbreed. And there's some point at which we say, well, they're definitely two different species. But on the road to being definitely two different species, you're kind of two different species and you're not really two different species. So mm. we shouldn't expect evolution necessarily to make our life easy. Um, what we should understand is that it is a process that does not think. And what it simply does is present us with representatives that did a better job of getting here than competitors that did a worse job. And to the extent that you are a member of many lineages at once, that's not a problem for this process. The process doesn't need to be able to say you are one of these and you aren't one of those. It just needs to simply continually select that subset of lineages that are playing the game well. So now why is this so inflammatory? Is it that the one fact that, that seems to keep coming up or, or, and, or it's, its existence or possible existence is, is the thing that is avoided in all of this is that populations or races or any geographically 
isolated group of people at any point in history. If you take two groups, they will vary with respect to, to certain traits. So we could even add culture here. They'll vary with respect to culture, but they'll also vary with respect to genes. And these genes govern many of the things we care about. You know, anything you can name about a human mind or a human temperament or a human physical characteristics, these vary, and they vary in very predictable ways. The fact that you can look at someone and make an educated guess about where their ancestors came from tells you that there's, there's some pattern here that is, is conserved, and it's just, it doesn't stop at the skin. And it would be a miracle, correct me if I'm wrong, if everything we cared about that wasn't superficial like the skin, things like intelligence, things like empathy, things like aggression, things, all of these things that to some degree are, are, are governed by genes, it would be a miracle if the average values in every population were the same. Um, what you've said, I think, is right, but I think it actually leads to a fear that I personally, having thought about it a great deal, having traveled in all different parts of the world, lived in different populations, I, I don't fear it. And I think... You, you, you don't fear that that's true, or you don't think this thing, this thing, if true, should be feared? I think the fear is born of the following observation. If we look at different sports, they select for different populations, right? Um, it happens that marathon running is dominated by Ethiopians and Kenyans. Um, you are unlikely to find uh, Inuits being highly successful in marathon running. And there's a good reason for this, because people from Ethiopia and Kenya are... The, the fact that that's even funny to picture <laughs> is worth flagging. It, it is. So don't get on Twitter with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this just stays between us. Um, so here's the thing. If you think about what it, is, what it means to be an Inuit, one of the things it means is that you have been selected to conserve heat because the difference between conserving a bit of heat and failing to conserve it is a life-and-death difference in many circumstances if you live in the Arctic. Um, if you're an Ethiopian, you have exactly the opposite problem. Radiating heat is the key to survival in a habitat that's that hot. So my point would simply be, Inuits are shaped so as to conserve heat. They are rounder, and that round um, shape does not lend itself to marathon running, and it should not trouble us or surprise us that we see this bias. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that people are very concerned that what we see playing out in different sports, the fact that different populations dominate different sports, is going to be a mirror for what we find inside the mind. And I don't fear this. I think there's a very good reason to see these things as unfolding very differently uh, in evolutionary terms, which is, in the example I just gave you, you can see a very good reason that two habitats select in very different ways for um, one's phenotype. Every habitat selects for intelligence, which doesn't mean that differences in intelligence didn't accumulate somewhere first. But the real question is, given that human populations are interconnected, to the extent that there are heritable differences in intelligence, what we should expect them to do is spread because they provide advantage to anybody who gets a hold of them. And so I realize at the moment there seems Except to be... Except they, they might not provide fecundity in anyone who gets a hold of them. Is, what if intelligent people are having fewer kids at this moment in history? Is that... Um, we have to put modernity aside. 
Right. As soon as you got. But in the process is still happening. So modernity could just be the last thousand years, right? Mm, I would say modernity. You know. I mean, what, 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 let me flip that around. There are there are genetic changes in us that have been selected for very recently. Maybe not a thousand years, but like five thousand years. Things sure. like lactose tolerance. And just to ask you, how quickly can that happen? Leaving aside deliberate manipulations to the genome, how quickly would you expect a culture to determine genetically relevant change? Um, well, I'm going to have to get pretty politically incorrect yeah, here. All right. Is that well, all right by so you? I'm leading you into dangerous territory, yes, so you are and none that. of this is on this piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those changes can happen much more quickly than we think. But human beings are very evolutionarily odd. So everybody is well aware that both nature and nurture play a role in what human beings are, and at some level the, the sophisticated consensus around that is that it's a fool's errand to try to separate out the influences of nature from nurture because, of course, they're both playing a role. What we don't say is that human beings are by far the most nurture-based creature that has ever existed on planet Earth, that we have been pushed in the last phase of our evolution very far in the direction of nurture and very far away from the direction of nature. And that is not an accident. That occurred because it provided a distinct evolutionary advantage. But in practice, what it means is that if you think of a human being as a, a physiological creature, that's the robot, and then it's got a brain, that's the computer, and then it's got a mind, and that's the software, the answer is that human beings are effective at doing what we do because so much of what we are has been offloaded to the software layer. And that is really the key to why human beings um, are capable of dominating every terrestrial habitat on the planet, why we can go into space, why you all can exist in this room in a way that your ancestors even 500 years ago probably wouldn't have understood. So the fact that all of these things have been shifted over into a software layer that can be written and rewritten as circumstances change says that the analysis that we might do for some other creature is less likely to be applicable to us. And the software layer is culture? The software layer is culture, but culture has to be defined a bit carefully. So culture are um, units of information that are transmitted generally from one member of a species to another. Now, this does provide culture with a special attribute, which is that it can move horizontally. You and I can exchange Mm. um, cultural tidbits. But most culture is likely to be transmitted vertically. So we learn an awful lot in our natal homes before we go out into the world and um, pick up more nuanced stuff. Right. So, yes, that cultural layer, I would argue, uh, is every bit as biological and every bit as evolutionary as the genetic layer. And, in fact, it is a special trick that has been deployed by the genetic layer in order to solve problems that the genetic layer is not capable of solving on its own. Well, I want to get deeper into this and, and the link between biology and culture and whether understanding evolution helps us produce more normative culture and society's uh, more worth living in. But before we go there, I want to just ask a question or two about Evergreen. And this is just this is a, a moment where we, can, we have an opportunity to, to say how we should rewrite our culture uh, or modify it. What, what would... So you take 
these topics that can be raised in the context of a biology classroom. And on their face, they seem dangerous to talk about. And there's obviously, there, there are many memes that have been spread about how even having a conversation like this that skirts these issues is a, a symptom of intolerance or some kind of perverse fixation on human difference that has a, an ulterior motive that, that we should be suspect of. What should students do, whether or not their understanding of the issues is correct? I mean, in many cases it won't be, but students who are outraged by something that's happening on a campus in the class or an invited speaker, what, what, what is the, the appropriate means of protest that doesn't lead to this absolute collapse of, of an institution? Yeah, uh, what indeed. Um, I would say the f- first problem is that something about modern protest is absolutely deaf to uh, realities that ought to be important to it. And were this not the case, there would be lots of room to navigate based on concerns, some of which may be legitimate, many of which I can tell you are not legitimate. But the key to dealing with these tensions is to air them and to discuss them. And the, the hallmark of what I saw at Evergreen um, and what we have seen elsewhere is that the movement is utterly ineducable on the topics that it's focused on, which is just the, the oddest thing. And it, it's, it's very unnatural. Hmm. So I should say, um, I lost very few friends in this circumstance. I did lose a few on the faculty side, but students have overwhelmingly been loyal to my wife and me and very sympathetic and generous and understanding. So, so the students who actually knew you knew you, and oh, the yeah. students who didn't know you demonized you. Right. But here's the part that um, I can't get past. When I talk to these students, and I talk to other friends who watched this whole thing unfold, I hear the same thing over and over again, which is they're not confused about me or Heather or any of what happened, but they cannot reason with their friends who don't know us. Hmm. Actually, so Heather's your wife, who is also a professor. Is also a professor at Evergreen for 15 years. In fact, Evergreen's um, most highly rated professor uh, based on Rate My Professor online. Hmm. You can go see her reviews. She's... she's yeah. Marvelous. Um, But I know that if if I was watching somebody, let's say that I I thought ill of somebody, I thought they were a horrible person, and then somebody said to me, you know what, I actually know them, you've got them wrong, I would immediately become agnostic about what was going on. I mean, that would just, like in an instant, I would say, well, either the person I'm talking to doesn't understand what's going on, or I've missed something. But something doesn't add up here, so I'm going to have to go slow and figure out what I've missed. This is not functioning in this circumstance. People who believe that they know what took place are so convinced of it that they cannot be derailed even by somebody saying, hey, you know what, I know that person personally, and they're not a racist. That doesn't apparently count for anything. So that tells me that this is a kind of religious fervor. It's Mm. not a natural... It's not an analytical conclusion that might be amenable to being changed if evidence arose that said something different. It's very unnatural. Yeah, it is. It does have a a kind of cultic 
shape to it, and, and you would almost have to deprogram someone who's got a ton of invested in, in viewing you a certain way. You know, you, um, when this first thing unfolded, I don't know if you remember it, but you tweeted something about it being cult-like, and I had not thought that thought before I saw your tweet, uh. but it instantly uh, resonated, and everything I've seen since says that that's, that's the correct analogy. Yeah, and, and also social media is obviously not helping in, in this regard. I mean, it's spreading these memes, and once you, again, once you have a, enough sunk cost seeing it one way, and you've been public about it, then the, the cost, the social cost of changing your mind publicly and apologizing seems insurmountable to people, which, I, again, this is an intuition that I don't share. It's like if I've, if I've been wrong publicly about something, particularly in this kind of area where I, you know, I thought someone was Satan and they turned out not to be, I would be so uncomfortable having just maintaining that by neglect. I, I just feel like uh, I'm wired to, to immediately rectify that problem. But it seems um, people have different intuitions here. Yeah, I, I don't quite get it because um, intellectual, honest brokers, I think, all reach the conclusion that you just suggested, which is at the point you discover that you've got something really wrong, it's very painful to get on the right side of it, but it's way cheaper than not getting on the right side of it and continuing to pay the cost of being dead wrong. So there's a way in which no matter how bad it is to backtrack and get on the right side of something, it's always a bargain relative to waiting, and somehow that logic does not seem to register with people. I guess there's another topic, two, probably two other topics we should mention here that, that freak people out. Well, there's, there's a, a name for what I now consider the most vulnerable attitude that would bias someone toward freaking out on these issues. And it, it is this term that I don't think I've ever uttered on a podcast, and I, I'm going to have you define for me. It's not, I haven't thought a lot about it, but this notion of intersectionality. Right? What, what is intersectionality and when will this go away? <laughs> yeah, well, um, actually, Eric and I have a, a, a long-running private discussion on this topic, and the, the upshot is that intersectionality, like so many of these concepts that we are now being backed against the wall with, actually has a bit of truth at the bottom of it. You know, it's a real thing, but it's been weaponized in a way that just makes it very dangerous. So the, the basic notion is that people who are from historically oppressed populations are not, you know, they're not identifiable with one of these things, that if, you were, uh, if you're trans and you're black, that that's two different kinds of difficult road that you're on simultaneously, and that the interaction of them is unique and emergent. I'm not sure I've actually heard it said that way before, but that, that there's some unique fact of all of the various things that you face that are obstacles. And the problem is that this gets turned into a very simplistic formula that essentially is like, um, well, maybe, maybe I should put it this way. There are two factions in the equity movement, equity being something that is never defined for a particular reason. But um, the two factions are a faction that earnestly wishes to put an end to systematic oppression. And the other faction wishes to turn the tables of systematic oppression. And in the context of turning the tables of systematic oppression, one's um, 
intersectionality quotient. That is to say, the number of kinds of oppression that an individual can claim basically says where in the new hierarchy you're going to be. Now, this is folly. It's not going to work. And even if it did work, the intersectional movement is unstable, game theoretically, because it is composed of all of these different entities that are not ultimately the same. Um, and you can see the, the friendly fire happening in that world where, where this, it's almost like a, a very unhappy game of Dungeons and Dragons where you have various powers that get misapplied against your friends. It's, uh, <laughs> it's actually, it's tragic. Um, at Evergreen, um, there were two, so Evergreen has a very large indigenous population um, and the movement used a lot of indigenous imagery to begin with. Um, most famously, it's something called the canoe meeting, which was um, an absurd exercise. But, you know, the canoe was there not by accident. It was there as a, a metaphor for, um, for this Indian mode of transport. And um, you could see that there was tension between these two factions, the indigenous faction and the black faction. And to my way of thinking, these two populations have the greatest claim on uh, systemic oppression having resulted in a, uh, a permanent underclass status of any two populations, but they were also in tension with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that ultimately, I believe, is going to tear the movement apart if nothing else does first, um, which, is, which is very sad because the, the systemic oppression is real. It wasn't real at Evergreen. It was phony at Evergreen. Evergreen was challenged because it was a soft target, not because it was a bastion of racism. But there are legitimate concerns to be addressed, and unfortunately, by pursuing them in this false way, we leave the impression that maybe the problem isn't real at all. I'm hesitant to go here, to land on yet another dangerous noun, but I'm encouraged by how little trouble we've gotten ourselves in thus far. Cool. <laughs> how do biologists think about sex and gender, and how will this survive export to the culture at large? Um, yeah. Take it away, Brett <laughs> Weinstein. No, actually, this is, uh, this is funny, because to me, sex and gender is a walk in the park compared to race, okay? Sex and gender, you know, there's the embarrassing aspect of discussing it, but the, the logic of it is much more straightforward mm. and I think actually probably easier for us to deal with. Um, sexes are real and they're different from each other for evolutionary reasons. And some of those differences we can do nothing about. And some of those differences, though they evolved and they came to the present as a result of the fact that they made evolutionary sense, we are not stuck with them. And we can reorganize the truth of the way the sexes interact, but we should do so um, deliberately and intentionally and not haphazardly because we stand to lose a tremendous amount if we just simply say uh, men and women are basically the same and um, anytime men and women don't behave the same way that's because the patriarchy is oppressing people. Um, that's just nonsense. And so the message I would, I would have is we should retool sex and gender for modern realities. Just the simple fact of birth control changes everything and uh, if nothing else did, that would license us to, to reinvent these concepts. But we should do so in an evolutionarily aware way. Can you say more about that? So the, the fact that women have control over their reproduction changes the Darwinian logic of 
sex difference, or what, where are you going with oh, birth control? It, change, it changes everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it also results in human beings, modern human beings, being in possession of this marvelous gift that they are now abusing. The fact that human beings can have sex and not produce babies, not play the baby lottery, that's a gift. Mm. And um, it should be treated with respect. Um, it should not be treated as, you know, well, we're there, therefore entitled to um, treat sex as if it were nothing. It's actually a very important, uh, it plays an important role in bonding between people. And to the extent that we are going to reinvent it in some modern way, we should, we should be careful with it. Um, but yeah, men and women are different. And that those differences, um, some of them are absolutely profound. So uh, the one I find the most interesting is this. Women do not have a reproductive strategy that allows them to produce huge numbers of offspring in a lifetime. There is, the, the world record is something like 60, which I still don't know how you get to 60. What, did, did you say 60 or yes. 16? No, 6D. Wow. 60. It, it, uh, so I, every time I say that, I think, wait, well, I've got to oh. have that wrong, and I look it up. But it, That's, it turns out to but be right. Somebody, somebody get on Snopes. <laughs> uh. Yeah, well... I think the, the, the answer is something like what it would have to be where the woman uh, was predisposed in some way to give birth to twins and she was constantly handing them off to wet nurses so that she was immediately becoming um, fertile again. But anyway, it was a, it's an interesting story, but it's very much an outlier, whereas there certainly are males that produce huge numbers of offspring in a lifetime. And the way males produce huge numbers of offspring in a lifetime is by producing offspring in which they invest nothing, which is impossible for a female. Even a female who hands off offspring immediately to a wet nurse is investing all of the effort of pregnancy, which is very substantial in humans. Mm. So what this means is that, uh, A, it produces evolutionarily the phenomenon of menopause eventually, where women adaptively shut down their reproductive capacity and invest in the offspring they've got rather than producing new ones. Um, but what this means is that effectively women, especially postmenopausal women, but women are much more likely to view their own well-being and the well-being of their brood in a way that is compatible with the well-being of their, their lineage at a larger scale. Because women cannot produce huge numbers of offspring at the cost of uh, other individuals, they are likely to be very far-sighted in their wisdom about lineage-level phenomena. After they can no longer produce offspring of their own, their interests become almost synonymous with the larger lineage. This isn't the way males see the world, because even an old male potentially could produce more offspring, and his fitness could go up uh, in that way. Males, on the other hand, precisely because of the way they reproduce, are much more likely to be uh, to gamble in a particular way and to gamble productively. So a lot of the big wins in human evolutionary history have to do with men taking insane risks and managing those risks to a win. So there's a kind of male wisdom that has to do with risk-taking um, and a kind of female wisdom that has to do with long-term thinking, and they're both wisdom. And frankly, what should we do with these things? We should democratize them both. 
right? We should hand them off. Everybody should begin to see their own well-being tied up in the larger lineage level questions. We would behave much more reasonably on environmental issues if we did that. Mm. And we should also figure out what the message of male wisdom is with respect to risk. And there's no reason going forward that it has to be deployed by males more than females. Anybody who wants it should, should, uh, should have it available to them. But we shouldn't expect it to magically appear equally in both sexes. We should probably have to be deliberate about figuring out how to pass it on. But now what do you do with more inflammatory issues like possible sex differences in both propensities and interests? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like the, the Google memo, you know, the James Damore letter. Feel free to weigh in on that anyway. You want to <laughs> destroy your reputation. I understand that, that we can step out of the, the stream of mere evolutionary logic and rewrite the software of, of culture, but if it is just a fact that men and women are different, not only physically but psychologically, in, in ways that are relevant toward the, the kinds of careers they seek out, what do we do when the, the different representation of men and women is always scored as a sign of bias or, or some sort of systematic injustice. I mean, if, if unless they're exactly the same, there, there will be a different representation. So what's descriptively true of our current situation, and what do you think we should be normatively sought? Um, I think, I mean, I think the answer here is, is pretty clear. Uh, it is simply not true that any time you have uh, different numbers of males and females in a profession, for example, that it is in and of itself evidence that there must be some unequal access. We know that's not true, right? Um, to take a, an analogy, it happens to be the case that uh, cycling, I'm a, I'm a cyclist and I follow cycling, cycling is um, a sport. I'm not talking about competitive cycling, but uh, casual cycling is something that is much less frequently done by black folks than white folks. Now, I can tell you that the culture at the bike store is not uninterested in selling you a bicycle if you're black. In fact, maybe it even carries some special cachet. But there is something in just the experiences of different populations that has resulted in, at the present moment, a non-representative distribution of people in the, the hobby of cycling. Couldn't, couldn't that just be an economic variable? Could be a lot of things. Seems Could be like an certain sport. zip codes are more dangerous to cycle in, and so if you grew up in one, you weren't encouraged to ride a bike, or it could be... You know, it could, be, it could be a lot of mundane things. What we know it isn't is any obstacle to cycling to any population. Anybody who wants to can get a bike and cycle. Nobody's going to tell you to get off the road. So we know that it is something else. It is not oppression. It is some other thing, which may be the result of the fact that zip codes are differentially um, desirable from the point of cycling and that zip codes are not distributed in a fair way. That's possible. But it is not oppression at the bike store. And sure. protesting at the bike store would be pointless, right? It, it makes no sense. That's actually fun to picture. <laughs> yes, I, I, I would I, support a bike store protest. So. It, just for the irony of it. Um, but, but in any case, I think the answer is fields occupations should be open, assuming that the particular field doesn't depend on physical brawn or something else that would explain why certain people need to be hired more than other people. Anything engineering, it doesn't matter. It should be equally open to everybody. And 
frankly, uh, you know, I, I like seeing women do stuff that is traditionally masculine. I happen to be married to a woman who, uh, though she looks lovely, sort of sees the world in masculine terms, and she's an evolutionary biologist who goes off to the Amazon and is comfortable carrying a machete, and, um, you know, that's the way she is, and, and uh, I think it's great. So I think we should encourage people to follow their passions, and to the extent that their passion is not consistent with historical biases in the way jobs or, or uh, fields were, were populated, uh, all the better. But we don't get to just jump to the logic that says if the numbers in the seats aren't even, then something has gone awry here because it's just, it's logically not true. Right. Which is not to say that that's never true. It's just not necessarily true. Exactly. Right. And in fact, I think we know uh, if you listen into what women in tech are saying, even people who are supportive of Damore and his memo acknowledge that there's an awful lot of not-so-nice uh, boys' club kind of stuff that goes on in tech circles. Yeah. So that's not good, and it probably does have an effect. Um, how much of an effect? That's a question that we should, we should study. To the extent it's driving people out of tech, that's bad, and it should be addressed. But um, that's a... That's a far cry from the facile notion that 50-50 is what we have to have mm. um, in order to demonstrate that there's no oppression. So how do you think about gender and its relationship to biological sex? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I've never done this before. I just I can't get a, over the fact that I'm just leading you down a, <laughs> a burning hallway filled yeah. with broken glass. Um, <laughs> they, they haven't like, rushed the stage. You're, you're doing so great. That, that's good. Um, yeah. Let's put it this way. Gender and sex are not identical. I think it would be fair to say that gender is the software of sex, which is not the same thing as saying... So uh, my wife is fond of the, uh, the description that these things are not binary, but they're bimodal, right? So sexes tend to be two modes, and those two modes tend to line up with two genders. And then there's a lot of stuff that doesn't exactly fit. Some of that stuff may be the result of chromosomally intersex people being different. And some of it may just simply be at the software level. Um, it, it would not be surprising at all in light of the fact that we are um, software-based creatures more than any other creature that it has ever been. We are living in circumstances that don't look like our ancestral circumstances. We are therefore getting all kinds of information in our developmental environments that is abnormal and untested. And what effect it has on your understanding of your own gender, we can't say. It's too early in the study. What I would say is that morally, we are absolutely compelled to be compassionate about the fact that lots of people are telling us, you know what? I have the sense that I was born in the wrong body. We don't know why that is. It's probably a, a mixture of phenomena. But come on, these are human beings, and they're telling you something about an excruciating condition, and they're doing the best they can to figure out how to navigate it. So at one level, I think it's a very interesting biological question. As a human being, though, I think it's a very simple question. We have to be compassionate. Yeah. We, we, I, don't, I don't want to sign up for any fiction. Yeah. Well, that, and there are so many cases where the the unclear biological or scientific picture is married to 
a very clear political answer like that. I mean, it's just that the politics are so simple, right? And the politics are what would compassion dictate in this circumstance? And once you connect with another person's lived experience, you know, the, the idea that, that, that the politics are, are difficult to resolve just goes completely out the window. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's quite analogous to the question of um, just straightforward male-female male, differences and how we should address them. The, right. the biological facts are interesting and they need to be navigated carefully. We can't sign up for fiction to solve the political problem, but at some level, the political dimension is up for us to navigate without all of the information being available to us as to, as to what causes the thing. They, they really are different questions. And unfortunately, because people have been effectively led to believe that they have a choice, that if they want to sign up for the right political answer, that they have to sign up for a fictional biological answer, we're caught in this conundrum where people like me are, are in danger because we want to say, hey, actually the biology doesn't support the idea that, that, that gender is made up and assigned by somebody when you're born. Gender is in general a good match for sex, and it is not something that is simply arbitrary. It's real, it's biological, it has a meaning. Um, but we, we, can, we can do the right thing, and, and that's, that's what we should do. I will also say, though, there is a... Just as it was with Evergreen and the issue of the equity protests, the story, from the point of view of the outside world, is not the real story. Inside the world of trans people, there is a diversity of opinion, which is now beginning to emerge. And it is penalized in order to keep people on narrative. And that's something we have to address. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, ContraPoints um, got in big trouble in the last couple of weeks based on her willingness to talk to people who were outside of a particular social bubble. And she was basically um, penalized online by the very people that had been supporting her. And this is a very unfortunate thing because what she was really trying to do was bridge a gap that we should all want bridged. Um, so anyway, if we support those people, this will work out much better and we will get to the conversation that doesn't insult our intelligence about sex and gender. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I've been spending most of my time doing is, is trying to think about questions of meaning and value in a rational scientific picture. And it's, it's the marriage of science and moral philosophy, loosely speaking, and important questions that society is, is grappling with or will have to grapple with. And it's, a, it's not everything is at the center of that Venn diagram, but ma many things are, are that, that I focus on. And there, there are many people who are struggling to speak about meaning and value and what constitutes a good life and what apes like ourselves need as an operating system so as to try to attain a good life. And, you know, I've collided with various of these people and agreed with some and disagreed with others uh, very publicly. And, and, and one of them who's making a lot of noise at the moment is, is Jordan Peterson. And, and Jordan is someone who I've done two podcasts with. And I've just noticed that everyone seems to have a good conversation with Jordan Peterson except for me. Uh, <laughs> and I've noticed, so you've had a few conversations with him and you, I think you and I are in largely in agreement about the, the scientific picture of things, but you've taken a different strategy and, and you 
spoke about in, in one of these talks, you spoke about the importance of metaphorical truth. I don't know if that phrase came from you or Peterson, but you were me. propping that up as a, as a viable way to think about these things. Let's talk a little bit about metaphorical truth and how it interacts with the scientific picture. Sure. So uh, metaphorical truth is a term that I generated in contrast to scientific truth or literal truth. And the idea is that what makes a particular concept useful evolutionarily is not necessarily that it is accurate. That lots of concepts are useful maybe specifically because they're inaccurate, but they lead you into a kind of behavior that is um, advantageous. So a metaphorical truth, the definition of it, is it is a belief that is factually wrong, but that if you behave as if it were correct, you come out ahead of where you would be if you behaved according to the fact that it is false. So I have a, a couple of examples of this. Mm. One of them is... Um, boy, this one uh, Joe Rogan didn't like very much. But... Um, <laughs> that if you believe that porcupines can throw their quills, then you actually have an advantage over somebody who knows that a porcupine can't throw its quills because a porcupine can wheel around quicker than you think. And porcupine quills are very dangerous. That At a, a molecular level, they are actually barbed in such a way that they will work their way in and can do a, a fair amount of damage. So if you are of the belief that that porcupine can throw his quills, then you're going to give it a wide berth, and you are not going to get porcupine quills in you, which is a good thing. Um, but you're still wrong about porcupines and their quills. Um, now, this is all well and good when it comes to something as rarely encountered as porcupines. Um, but my argument, and this is where you and I might get in trouble, is that this is the core of what makes uh, religion or has made religion so uh, effective at um, dominating the belief structures of human populations and allowing those human populations to spread over the planet. And so my point to Jordan Peterson was these are metaphorically true, literally false belief systems that have to be given their due because they provided advantage. They're not mind viruses the way Dawkins says they are. They are um, systems of belief that serve the people that hold them, or at least have, until modernity. Now, the bitter pill for those who hold these beliefs still is that because these belief systems evolved under past circumstances that we don't live in anymore, they have now all essentially, by definition, run their course. And so we can't just simply embrace these sacred texts and move forward on the basis of what they say because that's going to get us killed. Um, so it's time to get over this stuff for sure, but we can't get over it. Just as we are in, in the conversation about sex and gender, we should not sign up for the fiction that people who uh, hold religious beliefs are delusional. That's not what they are. Um, so if we can acknowledge that, well, maybe we can move some forward. of them might be. Oh, <laughs> I stand corrected. Many of them are clearly delusional. I don't know if they're delusional at a higher rate than people who aren't. Uh, who don't hold these beliefs. But, yeah, sure, many religious people... Are. But, but also, you wouldn't say that everything that is believed under the aegis of religion constitutes a kind of metaphorical truth that is more adaptive than knowing what's really going on. That was more adaptive. 
and I would say almost everything. So you actually think that, that evolution has been working in such a way as to track the spread of specific doctrines? Let's take evolution among Catholics, right? So there's the Catholics who believed in transubstantiation and the Catholics who only pretended to believe and the Catholics who openly doubted it. You're saying that the doctrine got solidified on the basis of the adaptive advantage of, of conferred on those who believed it? Yes. Firmly? And, it, and it, I mean, it looks to me like it, it works pretty simply, that sectarian differences in belief are essentially analogous to um, mutation. And so somebody will say, you know, I believe this doctrine, but I don't believe this part of it, right? And if they turn out to be right that that part of it is no longer viable, then they now have an advantage because whatever effort would be spent adhering to that part of the doctrine is now freed up to be spent on something else. So the one caveat I would say is that it is then tempting, if you think in these terms, to imagine that religions are all in competition with each other and that one of them will win out. But the same flaw exists here as imagining that one species of creature is going to win out, which is that uh, religions are, in this way of thinking, adaptations to different spatio-temporal circumstances. Different times and places in history favor different belief systems, favor different um, breeding structures for the population, and that populations that are tuned in to their particular moment have an advantage. Except there's just not enough time for many of these religions to, to have... How much time do you need? There can be a new religion started 20 years ago. Well, so we're going we're gonna to end up getting into all sorts of different kinds of weeds because I, I believe that there are four or five important places where we misunderstand the way evolution works in the first place. And so um, these things will seem to be wrong for simple reasons, but if they're wrong, they're wrong for more complicated reasons. People, that the, that's the greatest inoculation against doubt I've ever heard. Well, <laughs> the fair re- enough. If, if I am wrong, the reasons why I'm wrong are so complex, you won't understand them. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> that's um, awesome. So it doesn't take very long. First of all, the thing about storing information in the cultural layer is that it is capable of spreading by two mechanisms. It is capable of spreading by virtue of the fact that the people who believe it are spreading, and it is capable of spreading by virtue of the fact that people can recognize that some other population is doing something right. You know, you may not necessarily know what it is, but, um, you know, if one population, if two populations are farming corn and one of them has a good nixtamalizing process to free the nutrients from the corn and the other doesn't, the one population will start doing better. And nobody may understand the chemistry of why, but embracing the technology by which the population that's winning is processing its corn will suddenly generate that advantage for the second population as well. So I don't, I think the whole reason that, that the genome offloaded so much evolutionary territory to the meme space is that the meme space is capable of turning on a dime and uh, evolving very rapidly. And so that does mean that even, you know, first of all, we are constantly learning that genetic evolution is faster than we tend to expect it to be, in part because our story about how it functions isn't actually accurate. Um, it, it is accurate to a point, but it leaves out the majority of how genetic change functions. Um, but cultural change 
is um, incredibly fast. So remember the, uh, the Boxing Day tsunami of 2005, was it? Most people had not heard the term tsunami at the point that Asia hit by this um, massive wave. And you can actually see in the videos of people who were near the coast on that day that many of them were, um, were tantalized by the fact that you could see the sea floor out to a, a distance that wasn't normal. And many of them walked out to their death yeah. because yeah. they wanted to see the fish flopping about and things like that. But, you know, at the end of 24 hours, the number of us who knew full well what a tsunami was and what tells you that you're about to be hit by one was, you know, I don't know, it was like half the Earth's population. So that's incredibly quickly that that piece of information can penetrate all of these cultures that didn't have um, even a word for tsunami. Um, So cultural evolution is very fast. Mm. Can we account for every nuance of every religious tradition? No, and the closer you get to the present, the less likely it is to be true, but any long-standing tradition that has some large, expensive um, st- structure within it, um, that structure is sure to be paying the freight, because if it wasn't, some subpopulation would have said, hey, you know what, that thing's not true, right? right. That's blasphemy, let's get it out of here, and they would have won. Well, when you first mentioned this, this notion of metaphorical truth, I was thinking of, of simpler things like the notion of equality, for instance, that all people are equal. Now, that's something that we assert as a norm. It's, it's good to believe that. I think it is politically good to believe that, but we actually don't quite believe it in any uh, specific sense. So it's like if, you, if there's a hostage crisis and one of the hostages is the president of the United States, you don't just rescue all hostages with equal priority. You're you thinking well, he gets rescued first or last? Well, I guess in, <laughs> in this case... Yes. <laughs> I was... I honestly will never believe that he's president of the United States. <laughs> I was thinking about other presidents. So okay. Every other president you go for first. <laughs> but, but yet the equality heuristic or the metaphorical truth of equality, I think, is, is incredibly valuable and something we, we want to be aligned to. And yet it's not defensible in, in a fine-grained way. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not defensible. And in fact, one of the problems with metaphorical truth is that if you sign on to it because it has adaptive value, because it isn't stored in literal form, you can't figure out when you're in territory that it doesn't apply to or that you should think exactly the opposite thing. So there's a, a hazard built into this, and equality is exactly such a thing. Right. I happen to believe that um, modern humans are barring influences like lead in your water or something that would disrupt normal uh, development. Humans are pretty close to cognitively equal at birth. Now, I don't know for sure that that's true, and I'm aware of evidence that points to what are called heritable differences, but that's the way I'm betting based on what I understand biologically. It does not mean that human adults are equal. Now, human adults are unequal because of all of the things that are distributed unequally that are actually providing advantage. So if we believe at all that school has a value, then certainly good school will provide extra value to people who have access to it, and by the time they get to adults, if it isn't resulting in some different level of capacity, then we've wasted, at the very least, all of the 
resources that we spent building those environments. So it should be true that adult populations are unequal based on what they have access to. And to me, the key is this distinction. Is a particular um, inequity the result of something that could be democratized or not? So if it is school that is unevenly distributed, that we can fix. Um, so if it is true that people are more or less cognitively equal at birth, and then there are a lot of ways that they become unequal as a result of having differential kinds of advantages and facing um, differential kinds of hazards, then those are problems that are amenable to our tinkering, and we should think very carefully about them. Mm. Um, so a belief in the equality of all people, if you sign on to it in a simplistic way, will get in the road because you will have the sense that um, there's nothing that needs to be done because uh, any inequality that you see is simply the result of our not listening equally or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm. Well, listen, we've spoken for a little more than an hour, and I want to leave a lot of time for Q&A because I think one of the real virtues of everyone showing up in, in physical space is a conversation with all of you. So can we have the house lights up or half up or whatever is the right amount? And there'll be, I think there'll be two mics left and right in the front here. And I would love uh, questions. Now, questions are usually, by the end of the sounds that come out of you, actually a question. <laughs> Not always, but, but usually. And that's, that's, it's a good sign. And your audience mates will, will appreciate it. Can certainly ask a question to either one of us, or we'll just weigh in as we see fit. So I'll start. I'll start on the left here. Yeah, um, yeah please. I'm curious on to your opinions when it comes to. Um, Can you get a little closer to the mic, or when it comes yeah. to software and cultural evolution um, and the rapid pace that we're watching it happen? In what uh, capacity do you think social media plays a part in this? in the sort of, as the cultural evolution progresses and progresses, if you think that it's getting faster because of our technology? Well, I think it, it's certainly getting faster. I don't know that it's getting better. It's, fair, I, I'm, fair. I'm, I'm increasingly worried about social media. I mean, at first it just seemed like it was, a, it was good for a laugh and in getting your news diet kind of curated by smart people but something happened in the last 18 months that strikes me as, as ultimately pretty maladaptive. And when you see the kind of personality that comes out of, of people in comment threads and online, it's just we're, we're having interactions with one another that we would never have face-to-face. -face. And face-to-face, -face, we seem to always be capable of the best interactions. There's like a, an analog to road rage that's happening online by you know a, a billion fold that strikes me as, as very concerning and that we we need to get a handle on but yet minds are being changed very quickly and then also what online life allows for is a, a kind of you can find some kind of basin of attraction a kind of echo chamber where you just set up your information stream in such a way that you you never get out and that's that's something that we need to i think consciously fight against so I don't know if you have more on that. Yeah, um, I'll try to make this straightforward, but I think we're in serious trouble. And the reason is that there are 
four characteristics that when you introduce them into a system, you guarantee adaptive evolution. They are reproduction, variation, heritability, and differential success. And we keep building systems that have those characteristics without understanding that we've done it. And then those systems get away from us because they're evolving. And then we start scratching our heads about why the system isn't serving us in the way we'd like and why it's jeopardizing us. And so one thing that is true of our online environment is that we have started to hand over control to algorithms that are designed to do something simple, like keep our attention on a particular site. But the consequence, what evolution builds in such a space, is a, a demonic program for addiction, which people have started to notice. Tristan Harris, I believe you yeah. did a podcast with him. But these addiction programs are now escaping the control of the people who set them in motion. And those very people are beginning to be alarmed themselves and to have to set limits in their own lives to prevent them from being captured by this addictive mechanism. So I think the lesson of the moment is we've now done this to ourselves so many times that we need some policy or something equivalent to it that says we are not going to transform civilization haphazardly again. We are not going to put ourselves at the mercy of new evolving entities that we didn't plan on again because the danger to us is too great. That final point is a point that it feels like almost no one is thinking about this because we are, we, it is also haphazard. We're just producing this stuff and there's no space to stand where you can consciously chart a course, even nationally, much less globally. I mean, you can't even get a, a single society to have a kind of, I mean, it, just, it sounds like a, you'd have to exercise some kind of benign totalitarian control. It has to be Singapore or something. That has obvious problems. Yeah, that's, so, that's not desirable. No, but I mean, it's like, how do you... What, what was that? You're my first heckler. <laughs> it, took, it took like, it took 15 years, and you're that person. That is awesome. I'm right. honored to have been here for it. Thank yeah. you. Thank okay. you very much. Uh, hi, here. folks. Um, first of all, I have to apologize to your guest, Brett. I didn't know who was going to be the guest tonight, or I would have prepared a more relevant question. Um, Sam, the last time I saw you, I flew down to L.A. to see you with Dawkins, so thanks for coming to Seattle. You saved oh, yeah. me a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> so every time you talk about artificial intelligence, you provide us with a disclaimer that it is not your field of expertise. However, that is what I want to talk to you about tonight. Fair warning, there is one full paragraph here, but it does end in a question mark. So... Do you, first of all, do you believe that every consciousness has an attendant subconscious? Well, if you, if you mean is consciousness produced by not processes produced. that that it's not conscious of, well, then that would seem to suggest that there's something subconscious to the conscious. If consciousness is an emergent property at all, it's riding on top of something. Right. It's like a deeper background maintenance program type of thing. Like a subconscious. The notion of, of, of the unconscious in science now, in neuroscience and, mm -hmm. and psychology, bears some resemblance to the Freudian one, but it's not, it, it's much more of a, a kind of information processing unconscious. It is not the, the, the spooky Freudian one, but it does right. have some spooky characteristics. So, um, so how does this relate to AI? What's, what I'm getting at is this, if we created a consciousness, do you think it would have a subconscious mind and a, a form of one? 
it would seem impossible for it to be completely mm -hmm. pulling itself up by its bootstraps consciously. It's doing all the yeah. time, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess what I was getting at is uh, if it did have a subconscious mind, we're not fully aware of, even people who do work on and kind of focus and meditate on to become more in touch with our subconscious minds, are, not, are kind of by definition are not fully in control or aware of it. And we have, most humans have a compulsion against doing harm. Like even if we're in a situation of danger, we'll either huh. subdue and run away or just run away even when we, have, when we could do something else. So if, if we create a consciousness and it has an attendant subconscious mind, an artificial subconsciousness, isn't that the place where we could implant that compulsion against being malevolent to humans that people like Nick Bostrom and yourself? This is just a huge problem that is people are, are groping toward a solution for current AI is so far from being a general, scary, superhuman intelligence that it seems just fantastical to, to worry about this. Uh, but the moment you posit a, a system that can make changes to itself and that can design future systems based on its lights, and it's a system that is better at everything we do, right? And this is, this is something that eventually, I, I would argue, eventually will, will emerge because... There's nothing magic about having a, a computer made of meat. I mean, the, the, what, what our minds are doing will be done in silicon at some point. Then you're talking about constraining a system that is bigger, deeper, wider, more insightful than you are. And, and that just imagine how that would work on us if, let's say, we had been invented by chimps or invented by dogs or invented by chickens. I mean, the, at a certain point, it just it wouldn't. We're, we're entertaining concerns that our inventors, in this case, couldn't imagine. And, and the truth is, evolution is our inventor, and we're entertaining concerns that evolution couldn't imagine. I mean, the fact that we've evolved just to, to spawn and feast and secure that, those liberties for our kin and basically do nothing else, it is, it's pretty clear that evolution isn't seeing everything we're up to. It certainly isn't seeing a conversation like this. But I've got, got to move on. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Sam. My name is Rowdy Keeler. Thank you for yep. being here. I wrote this down so I can be brief sure. and make sure I get the point across. Uh, there is a strong argument that the moral baseline for our behavior towards other sentient beings should be treating them the way that we would want to be treated if we were all of a sudden to switch consciousnesses. Um, you have said yourself that there is no nutritional need for animal products and there are a multitude of studies and plant-based ultra-athletes that seem to substantiate this claim. Since most Americans consume the flesh and secretions of other conscious beings simply to satisfy habit, taste preference, and convenience, and not necessity, how would one interested in living a moral life justify this exploitation? And do you see yourself taking a firm position on this issue? I, mean, I, th I think it's a, it's a hard question. I think, you know, it is true that factory farming is a horror show, and it's, it is, I think, indefensible. It's true, I think, with many moral changes in society that, that are brought to scale that will actually matter, I think what we need are system-wide changes more than we need individual changes in choice. Now, this is, you might think this would just be accomplished very easily if we could just convince 7 billion people to be vegetarian and gave them the right supplements or protein powders or, or created an agricultural system that was optimized to getting everyone what they needed. But I think in this case, there'll be other aspects of the solution. One person I had on my podcast 
was um, Uma Valetti, the, this cardiologist who has now started this company called Memphis Meats, which is a it's essentially a tech startup, but it's a it's a, a clean meat technology where actual meat is being synthesized in in vats, and uh, that is you know I think now Bill Gates has invested in it, and this is this is something that they're going to attempt to to bring to some kind of scale. That's obviously not a vegan solution, but it's a solution that takes animal suffering completely out of the equation. And I, I think that is, yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful that that will be part of this solution. But yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the details of an abattoir are very difficult to defend. I, ha- I have less of a, a strong feeling about hunters doing what they do. I think that's m- certainly more defensible than going to McDonald's. But again, but as far as, the, as, far as it being straightforwardly easy to be healthy as a vegetarian or, e- or even worse or harder, healthy as a vegan... I'm not convinced that that's true for everybody, and I've, I have really struggled with that. I was a, a, a vegetarian, a pure vegetarian, for six years at one point and became anemic. I recently did it again for a year, and my blood values went haywire. So then I, then I, I ate some fish for another year after that, but I don't really like fish. I was eating kind of medicinal fish and unhappily. <laughs> and so and that didn't change things all that much, and, and I'm sorry to say that in the last two or three months, I've started eating meat, and honestly, I feel better, right? So now this could be the placebo effect, uh, but I'm totally sympathetic with the, the ethical problem of doing it, and I try to do it in, in the most whole foody sort of way, but I, I realize that's not going to appease the, the vegan in you, but it, it's something that I'm struggling with, and it's, you know, I, I think there will be a solution that could be brought to scale at some point to, to make this easy and, and workable for everybody. Can, so. I, can I get in on that one? Yeah. Um, there's a way in which I think this question is, it, it results from a conflation of two issues. Factory farming is indefensible, and the suffering of farm animals uh, is appalling. And meat is also a way that, or a way of feeding ourselves that spends the resources of the planet very quickly and is indefensible at a, an environmental level. But neither of those problems is unsolvable. And the issue of whether or not it is okay to eat animals seems to me that we get it wrong. That in fact, farm animals have a long-standing partnership, a mutualism with human beings, and it's a good deal for them if they are raised in conditions that are not inhumane. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because the idea of suddenly being slaughtered one day for meat isn't a very pleasant one, but from the point of view of, let's say, a chicken compared to the jungle fowl that it evolved from, there are far more chickens on Earth today than there ever were jungle fowl, and they've been with us. They will be with us long after the jungle fowl has been um, driven extinct by habitat loss. And so thinking about these creatures as our partners and recognizing that we have an obligation not to treat them in ways that make them suffer seems to me the right answer to that problem. And then there's a question of how much meat is the right amount um, with respect to the sustainability issue. But I don't think our obligation to farm animals is to drive them extinct by not eating them anymore. Hmm. Well, and to, just to, to add one point to that is that becomes, ethically, that would in fact be the right answer if farm animals had net positive lives. So, so, so if, if, if the life of a cow on a farm was a life worth living, 
if it was better, if it was better than non-existence, right? So again, because you're talking about phasing out billions upon billions of creatures if we no longer eat them. So if it were, in fact, better to exist as a cow and then die in this way at some point, and granted, it's, it does not seem to be the case at all now, then that would be an argument for it. Our intuitions could go in different ways on that. I would just request an expert on this to continue the conversation because we, yep. we value your opinion and okay. it's not going away. Thanks. Okay. Um, quick note about glad you're feeling better now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just occur occurred to me, as you just said that, that after eating meat you felt better. Uh, it just occurred to me that could there be a distinction between people who are used to eating meat and weaning off of it makes you anemic as opposed to being a lifelong vegetarian, for example. Maybe there's a biological reason to that. It's not my real question. Uh, my real question is, uh, you said something about, uh, you alluded to the cult-like nature of the evergreen movement and you called it a religious fervor. Uh, that raised a, a question in my mind. Do we have like a flawed predisposition as a species to lurch towards these tendencies? And is there anything we can do at the individual level to guard against things like that? And secondarily, is there things that we can do at a broader level to ensure that our civilization doesn't repeatedly lurch towards these um, tribalist impulses, like how we saw in Evergreen, which mm. is a hallmark, which is an educational institution, uh, the least the least likely of places where I would expect something like that. Yeah, well, you, you said the word tribalism. I, I think is is the, the main variable here. I, there are other aspects to it, but tri I mean, we we are clearly deeply wired for tribalism. And, and there's, there are fun versions of tribalism that I, arguably we wouldn't want to get over, like picking a favorite sports team, you know, caring whether your team wins or not. I mean, that, that's, that's so entertaining for people. I actually don't happen to be one of those people, but I can see that <laughs> many of you really enjoy that. <laughs> Every four years I get into it for the World Cup, but other than that, I don't think about it very much. But Clearly, when people take it too far and become violent or deranged by their fanaticism, I mean, that's where, where we get the word, you know, fanaticism. I mean, do you see another, what, what's the cure for tribalism? Oh, there's, there's such a deep irony in this question because Evergreen was not the school that you saw. That definitely happened at Evergreen, and it was real, and it represented something that was there. But there was another thing going on at Evergreen that involved a teaching model in which professors were full-time with one class of students, and students were full-time in that class, and it could go on for a full year. And in that, what we called programs, the possibility for taking a deep issue like this and unpacking it and taking your time to figure out what's actually true and what's going on was possible. It was a kind of... Um, it was a magic uh, thing when it clicked. And so the solution to the problem that you're talking about is not, we have this bad habit of wanting to know the answer now. And so we leap at partial answers and we don't understand that we're signing up for downsides to these things that are disastrous. Um, so wisdom involves, I would argue, maybe more than anything else. It involves delayed gratification. Unpacking the issue carefully is the way not to get sucked into these um, movements that are pursuing ends that we should never wish for. And uh, that's, there's, I don't think there's, there's a shortcut to it. You have to go carefully. But when you realize that, I mean, here's the, here's the central fact. We are evolved creatures. 
our evolutionary drive is responsible for the best things about us and the worst things about us. The very same parameter that makes a mother love her children makes people commit genocide. And that means that you are going to have to pick. You are going to have to decide which things that evolution would have you do are honorable and you wish to, um, to, to do them and which things you wish to reject because your humanity tells you that you are more than just an evolutionary robot. And so... When people are involved in these uh, tribal movements, they are operating automatically. They are pursuing ends that something inside them tells them to pursue. And if they realized that sometimes people who felt just like they did put other people into gas chambers, maybe they'd stop. And that's really what we have to do. We have to look each other in the eye and say we've got real stuff to work out um, and it's not, going to, it's not going to come by some simple rule of thumb, but let's discuss these things rather than decide we know the answer and then automatically pursue it. It almost sounds yeah. like you're saying... Yeah, well, one thing I would, I would add to that is, and it, this focuses on your claim that the, these are people just like you, right? And that, that's, that's crucial to take on board. And what you realize there is that this is not, for the most part, a problem of the world being filled with bad people. And this is the, the heuristic I, I'm using now is that bad ideas are much more ascendant than bad people. I mean, bad ideas are what cause good people to behave in unconscionable ways. And every genocide, I mean, it, 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 there are just not enough psychopaths in the world to be prosecuting all this evil. So every horrific tribal eruption you can name was mostly constituted of psychologically normal people just like ourselves. And that's, that's both sobering, I mean, it's somehow more ghastly in, in a way, but it's also, it offers the basis for hope because these people, being just like ourselves, are potentially just one conversation away from being stripped of their bad ideas. And that's, that's why conversation, I think, is the, the lever we have to get our hands around and, and pull as hard as we can. It almost sounded like you were saying when we had to pick the right kind of instinct. It almost sounded like you're saying we ought to be mindful, and I think you would have something to say about that, but thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Thank you for your podcast. I feel like everyone should support it, uh, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Oh, thank I you. I have a question regarding uh, using drugs. So to use an analogy, if you have a malfunctioning screen, it might produce some interesting colors, some interesting patterns but it's still malfunctioning. Mal and in a similar way, uh, it seems like using drugs makes your mind and your uh, brain to be malfunctioning. It might produce some interesting experiences, some interesting uh, uh, good uh, ways to see the world. But in mo most cases, it just breaks the way your mind works. Mm. And it's interesting and a little shocking to me how positive you are about using drugs and I would like to hear your guest in this yeah. regard too. Thanks. Yeah. Well, so and perhaps you've heard my rap on this, but I think we're misled when we talk about drugs as a single class of thing. The word drugs is a, is a suitcase term like sports and I would also argue that like religion, I mean, so, so reli not all religions are the same, not all sports are the same, and not all drugs are the same. And 
some are very dangerous. They're almost synonymous with danger. I mean, to, to, I guess sports is the clearest case here. I mean, you have a sport like, like Thai boxing or MMA where it's, it's, it's actually synonymous with violence. You, can, you can't do the sport unless you're going to be violent, and you can't do the sport unless you're going to run the risk of, of real injury. And then there's other, other sports that are not at all violent, but they're even more dangerous, you know, so free solo rock climbing or so, you know, climbing high walls without ropes or, you know, flying in a wingsuit, right? Not violent at all. It's incredibly peaceful until you hit the wall at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> and then there are sports. Uh, I got into trouble with, with my example here was always badminton. I, saw, I talked about badminton as this completely feet injury-free sport, but... <laughs> Then they got inundated with videos of professional badminton, <laughs> which, ne- which looks incredibly hardcore. <laughs> so pick your feet injury-free sport. So drugs, drugs are like that. I mean, they're drug- we take drugs all the time that we don't even think of as being drugs. And we're, we're constantly modifying our, our conscious states with something we're putting in our mouths. And... And some drugs yet to be invented, right? Hopefully there will be better drugs that will have only upside Even someday. the ones that you've but, used... To but most of... The, so just to get to the public service announcement part of this, <laughs> for the most part, I don't do drugs at all, right? I mean, it's been years since I've done any psychedelics, and I virtually never smoke pot. Uh, I drink alcohol, and alcohol is an incredibly dangerous drug that that produces a, a lot of harm in our society when it's misused. You know, I have a healthy respect for what can go wrong on psychedelics and, and how much of a spin of the roulette wheel it is to take a 12-hour acid trip. But yet it's also true that psychedelics, specifically in, in my case, LSD and psilocybin and MDMA, which is not really quite a psychedelic, but it's often classed with them, they've been incredibly useful to me, and if only to advertise that there are other conscious states that are worth inhabiting that can be achieved more or less by by other means. And so, it's I can't I can't recommend drugs because you can, you can screw up your life if you're not if you're unlucky, frankly, or and you're not disciplined. But I can't deny the fact that certain experiences that that I wouldn't have had otherwise were very valuable to me. So it's it is a it's hard to speak responsibly to the 14-year-old in your life about this. <laughs> yeah. Can I uh, yeah. speak to the evolutionary question here? Yeah. Um, there are so many examples of cultures that have a relationship with some hallucinogenic substance or other. There is no way that this is a maladaptation. These cultures have these relationships with these substances for a reason. And that doesn't mean that they treat them casually. In fact, if there's one thing that is consistent amongst all of the cultures that induce some sort of hallucinatory state with a molecule or a sweat lodge or whatever, whatever they do, it's that they, these things are treated with a great deal of respect. So I would say there's a problem with the idea of drugs as a recreational thing, that we shouldn't treat them recreationally. We should treat them very seriously. But having said that, these substances allow one to perceive things that hover outside of normal consciousness. And we are at a moment in our history where the content of what is inside of our consciousness is not sufficient to get us out of the danger we're in. We're going to need to find ideas that are outside of our consciousness in order to understand 
how to bootstrap the next phase of civilization. Doesn't mean these substances are for everybody, for sure. But I think anything that says nobody should be doing these things um, is a mistake. We need to free people uh, to experiment with mechanisms that we can infer from the way cultures interact with them have been useful over evolutionary time. Yeah, and we need to study them. Thanks. Thank you very much. So I found this concept of uh, a metaphoric truth that you brought up. I never encountered it before, but I found it very compelling. And it seemed to me that it's, uh, even some of your arguments kind of lean toward, <coughs> excuse me, um, they lean towards this kind of group selection kind of argument where, you know, these ideas evolve because they benefit the group that holds them. Um, and I wanted you to kind of unpack that and reconcile it with, you know, the fact that memes are not selected for based on, uh, you know, the benefit to the group, but rather benefit to the memes themselves. Um, and if you could kind of dig into the details a little more. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, you've, uh, you've opened a can of worms there that we probably can't fully unpack. But I would say there are um, what I believe are a couple of important ways in which we think about evolution, especially as it relates to human beings, incorrectly, and we need to correct them. I'm not a group selectionist. I believe the group selectionists have misunderstood the logic. On the other hand, their opponents, the kin selectionists, have misunderstood how to apply kin selection, uh, especially in the context of humans. It is, I will argue, not correct that memes evolve for their own purposes. Memes are downstream of the genes that make a mimetic mind possible, and therefore the genome is in a perfect position to shut down the mind if the mind runs away and starts doing things that are not good for the genome. And the fact that it hasn't done that, the fact that our mimetic capacity has been augmented over recent human evolutionary history tells us that the meme sphere is serving the genes, which is not necessarily a good thing. What your genes want is not... As I was saying before, it's not fully defensible. Much of it's abhorrent. But nonetheless, the memes are evolving in service of the genome, and then it is up to us to recognize that the objective of the entire program is not honorable, and that we, therefore, have to take over this apparatus and figure out how to do that in a way that does not then suddenly put us at a disadvantage relative to people who don't decide to put away the evolutionary objective. Sam, the uh, Dalai Lama has spoken about being the last Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, though, that can't happen unless and until Satori is back in the world and understood. Is that correct? Uh, what was that last sentence? It can't happen unless and until? Un unless Satori is back in the world and understood. You're kind of combining di different traditions there. You, you know, I actually don't totally understand the politics of that would lead him to say that i mean I, I think the dalai lama believes that dalai lamas can being bodhisattvas can sort of decide to stop their career at a certain point i mean it's, it's been a long time since i've been in touch with I, I've, I've met him a few times and, and I'm, there was at one point in my life where i was kind of surrounded by tibetan buddhists so i was sort of close to the conversations on topics like this but i'm i'm not aware of of what he's thinking there but i think he I think he made that almost as a threat 
to sort of elude the possibility that the Chinese would pick the next Dalai Lama. I think at one point the Chinese said the next Dalai Lama will be found in China, and in order to close the door to that, he or at least introduce some uncertainty, he said, well, I might not necessarily be coming back, but I, I, I honestly spend no time thinking about the reincarnate possibilities of the Dalai Lama at this point. But he's an extraordinarily inspiring person up close, I, mu I must say that. The experience that he's talking about is back in the world. I have achieved Satori three times. Okay. And well, I prefer the Western designation, Gnosis. Uh, but... Uh, well, I, yeah, so, but I, I, mean, I wouldn't say... It's, it's not... I can you, explain to you the scientific explanation for it. The, 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 honestly, this is not the forum for that. And your Satori will inoculate you against any offense taken here. Well, uh, no. You, it's, you, uh, it's, it's a normal experience. It's it, a human it is, it is a normal experience. We, we agree there, but it's, and, it's actually, this is not the place for you to convince me that you've had it or that no. I haven't. So, but thank you, for, thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, thank, you for, thank you both for coming, first of all. Um, so I listened to your podcast yesterday, and earlier discussion made me realize that the, the cow that I drove by probably has a stronger argument for continued existence than I do, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, live in the woods, spent 18 months driving by an 8 by 12, probably bigger than that, Trump sign. Spend way too much time on social media and watch both sides. I consider it both sides. It's not really any my side. Use scorcher policies to do exactly the opposite of what we've talked about here, what we've engaged in here. How do we defend against hopelessness in that scenario? I mean, how do you, putting all the work that you put in to trying to explain to people how reality works, and then this happens, how do you get... How do you keep going? Um, how does somebody like me, the, you know, the layperson, the non-professional, have a discussion with somebody and not get just completely discouraged and give up? Because that's not going to achieve anything that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, it, it's a real problem, except when you realize that what you have is this moment. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a problem for you in this moment. This moment that's illuminated by your conscious life, where you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and you're here, and you have, we're in conversation. There, this, this has a, a kind of completeness and a unity to it, and it's something that you can keep recognizing as the actual character of your life. It's just here. And the rest is, is something you're thinking about. The rest is a story you're telling yourself about what just happened or what's likely to happen in the future. And that's why, for me, that's why meditation is such a... It's an unavoidable part of this answer to how do you live well in the world. And, and again, meditation isn't necessarily crossing your legs and, and, and doing anything esoteric. It's actually just developing the ability to recognize what's actually going on in each moment. What are you actually feeling? What are you, what are you actually intending? What, is, what do you notice? You're, no, you're noticing things every moment of the day through no free will of your own. You're, just, you're hearing things, you're seeing things, you're, the next thought arises, and you can either be 
lost in thought while going down the, the, the stream of consciousness, or you can actually just recognize that consciousness has a, a certain character in this moment, and, and thoughts arise. And so it's, it gets getting out of the story you're telling yourself about the future or the past. And it's an, it's, it's an ability that, that has to be trained, but, I, but it really is, it, it is the answer to this, because the answer to you know, why it is we don't feel better most of the time is we're not, we're not feeling better. It's, like, like there, it's possible to actually make contact with your life in a way that is intrinsically rewarding. I mean, to actually just be at peace, if, if only for a moment. But, that, but again, that, does, that answers this problem. At least for me, it answers this problem of meaninglessness and what's it all about and you know, what, you know, we're all going to die. What's the point, right? The point is this. There's beauty and profundity in this moment, always. And it's, it's not even contingent upon experience changing. It's not contingent upon suddenly feeling better. It's not even contingent upon the pain that was worrying you a moment ago disappearing. It's just, it's contingent upon your willingness to just drop the story for a moment and, and just be. Thanks. Um, could, I, could I pick that up? I would take, a, I'm not sure I understood the question exactly, but, um, but I heard something different in it. And what I would say is that we, we have an audience here full of people that took the time to come here and hear from Sam uh, important things, people who are open-minded enough to want to spend their time in this way. And what I've been seeing uh, since last May is that that actually represents, I don't know if it's a majority, but it's certainly a huge fraction of people. They are waiting to hear a message that isn't the same tired message of division anymore. People are becoming open-minded because they are frustrated with what being closed-minded has done. And um, the recognition that we are responding to false stories about who other people are and that we need to start listening to each other um, that may sound uh, corny, but uh, there's an awful lot of truth in it. So my brother, Eric Weinstein, has a model that I think he deployed for the first time on your podcast, the four-quadrant model. Yeah, without the aid of visual aids. It has, somebody has put it up with the visuals. Yeah. Um, and I would, it's still not simple, but it's well worth watching a few times in order to get it. And the basic idea is that there are certain states of being that we are told cannot exist. You know, the obvious one from my perspective would be that you could oppose an equity proposal and not be a racist. That that is part of what is called a stigmatized narrative. And so you are forced into being imagined to be a racist because the thing that you actually are, you're told, is not a real thing. Um, so what I would suggest is taking a look at this model and understanding that many of the things, many of the beliefs that you probably hold are actually the result of some process that has got us falsely viewing each other with suspicion where we don't need to. And um, the number of people who are looking for some fresh answer that does not insult their intelligence and does deal with the, uh, the real reasons that we might unite, that number is very, very large. I would say I'm, I'm surprised by how large it is um, from what I've seen over the last six months. Yeah, yeah. And I should say, my, in my answer to that last question, I, I, I'm not disavowing any project that would seek to change the world. 
I'm just saying if we're miserable every step along the way and unaware of the mechanics of our own suffering, it makes for a painful and, and probably ineffective uh, effort. I have a question about uh, an evolutionary biology question. Um, it seems that uh, as a species, we're, we're gaining more and more control over variables that have historically sort of guided um, you know, the, the diversification of species, such as our environment, and then your most, or one of your more recent podcasts discussing the new gene editing technology, the mm -hmm. CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. I, I want to uh, get your take on, on what this will do to the evolution of our species and, and other species from this point uh, going forward. We are, we are in danger because the inputs to these systems are incredibly noisy. Many of them are ill-suited to be managed by a market, which is more or less the mechanism that we've handed management over to. And I'm saying this as somebody, I'm a tremendous fan of markets. I believe that there are things that markets do better than any other mechanism. But our, the naive way that we expect markets to solve each and every problem is... Um, it is going to result in ever larger catastrophes. In the case of CRISPR-Cas9, there is one thing that will protect us for a while, which is that CRISPR-Cas9 gives us the typewriter. Um, it allows us to edit. Maybe it's the word processor, but what we don't have is the Rosetta Stone. So we don't speak genome well enough to edit some fantastical improvement in future humans, for example. We will be clumsy with that technology for quite a while and probably too clumsy to do a huge amount of damage. But the danger that we will ultimately do a huge amount of damage is definitely there, and we would be wise to figure out how to intelligently govern technologies like this before they do to us what our uh, feed algorithms and search algorithms are now already doing. In effect, we're already suffering the, the harm of runaway AI, but we don't recognize it because it's not robots. We were expecting robots, and it's, it's algorithms. Um, so we've done it to ourselves once. Maybe it's not too late to get control of those algorithms and figure out what to do in the 2.0 version, um, but we shouldn't do it to ourselves with CRISPR-Cas9. Um, we should be very careful with these things, and markets do not magically govern these things well. They, they do it very poorly. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. All right, well, first off, um, just right out of the gate, once more amongst the cavalcade of thank yous to the both of you. Well, thank you so thank much you. for being here and allowing us all to be party um, to this fantastic dialectic of yours. Yeah, thanks for coming. And now, the question I have um, is for the both of you, but I suppose it does touch more so upon the subject area of Mr. Weinstein. Um, and as you before mentioned, humans are particularly unique amongst all organisms for being, as you say, so software-based, which I interpret as human beings, uh, or humans being, uniquely endowed to act in ways that give rise to many interesting phenomena, to say the least. Given how this results in the extra stratum of systemic effect on human behavior, that is, culture and society, we have thus been able to differentiate philosophically between what is, as in nature, and what ought to be, you know, in our ethical systems, uh, wherein we humans may hew to ethical systems that, while 
are the products of brains that are in turn the that are in turn the products of evolution do not necessarily have a logical basis in nature. That right. not necessarily to imply that they're illogical, but rather they don't necessarily hew to what could be called the naturalistic fallacy. Can I cut? You? I feel like I got the gist of your question. Can I cut it short there? I mean, it's a, it's a great question, but at Almost least the said. one I have in my head is a great question. <laughs> it's probably the same thing. It's more elaboration. Okay. So, but, what is your idea? What is your view of the idea that humans may almost abrogate the natural foundations of their behavior, you know, that which has evolved, and instead act in accordance with these, uh, so to speak, artificial moral constructs, insofar as it's even possible to step... Okay. <laughs> now it's becoming le a less good question. L let, me, let me just, <laughs> let me right. just take the gist of it. Look, so, I trust your judgment yeah, in so, this. So, Brett, <laughs> facts and values, how do we think about flying the perch that evolution has prepared for us? Well, the first thing to do is to get over the idea that you want to um, fulfill evolution's wish for you. It's not a good wish, and in fact, it's an absurd wish, because um, I am not exaggerating to say that every single creature that has ever evolved has the identical self-same purpose, which means it can't be a very good one, right? If you have the same purpose as a liver fluke and malaria and a fig tree, then it's a pretty generic, uninteresting purpose at best. Um, so the first thing to do is recognize that we are in a very odd spot evolutionarily. Evolution has awarded us the capacity to evaluate our purpose and reject it, which we should do right away. Um, having rejected it, we can substitute other things, and that leads right to the question of, well, what values actually do unite us? And I will say... I've been uh, working on questions of what we're supposed to do, what humanity is supposed to do now, at, whether this is the tail end of history or whatever it is. And the values part is almost the easiest part. Good people will agree on basic values. They will disagree about what policies ought to be used to enact them. But good people um, basically want to see a fair, safe, sustainable anti-fragile world that liberates them to do things that have real meaning and value in them. This is not controversial. I haven't seen the room yet that's divided over it. And then we well, can ex talk about except how to... Modulo, some of the people who are sufficiently enamored of their metaphorical truths so as to want to perform clitorectomies and <laughs> all the rest. Yes, I haven't been in those rooms, okay. so you're right. This is yeah. a, a, a few of those bias. Yeah. But... Um, but nonetheless, the fact that we do have basic, at least that we in the West have overwhelming, it's not universal, but overwhelming agreement on basic values, and we have the cognitive capacity to say, actually, we would rather pursue those values for humanity moving forward than we would pursue evolution's program, which is not honorable, can't be defended, and is ultimately a danger to our persistence. Mm. Okay, so... Uh I hate to say this, but we have about five or ten minutes left, and this should make uh, most of you standing in those lines feel the utter pointlessness of <laughs> life. <laughs> so sorry for that. There's just no, given how long-winded we are, there's no elegant way to do this. So I, I think let's, let's take the, f the front two in each line and, and do our best with that. Um, uh, again, apologies. Send your questions in to my next AMA, and, and if I can't answer them, I will get... Brett on that AMA and, and he'll answer it. Yeah, please. 
This is an honor. Um, your books and your debates filled like a South Georgian-sized God hole in my heart, and I really appreciate that. Uh, so my big question is, what does this look like, the, the landscape, the moral landscape? Is it a book? Is it a video? Is it a moral, is it like a, a Wikipedia page? If it is a Wikipedia page, your dilemmas with the mobile app uh, notwithstanding, uh, why haven't you started it yet? Yeah, I guess a lack of good ideas. You know, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, honestly, it's, it's just, it awaits a completed science of the human mind, I mean, like a, or mind in general. And I, this AI becomes an interesting side conversation on this topic because we're, insofar as we're talking about the prospect of building conscious minds that can thrive or suffer, we have to, and that's obviously ethically an important thing to do or not do, depending on what's happening there. We're, we're essentially mining the possibilities of experience in this universe, and we don't know very much about the variables that govern you know, what kinds of conscious experiences intelligent systems have. And we're, we're just dimly aware of what makes us happy on a day-to-day basis. And, and so I, it's, it's a check I don't yet have to cash because the, the facts aren't in. But we know, as Brett just said, in terms of the broad strokes, we know the values that reliably make us miserable, and, and we know the values that reliably produce happy, collaborative lives among billions of strangers. And an and open conversation without an appeal to force is, I think, the master value at this moment. So free speech and a tolerance of diversity in, in the idea space and, and a willingness to just keep the conversation going long enough so that people of goodwill and who are neurologically intact can co- converge, right? There will be crazy people, there will be psychopaths, or there will be people who, who aren't adequate to the conversation, but for the most part, that's like a rounding error, I think, on, on the species. So I th- it really conversation, in the, in the near term, we're talking about conversation about what makes life worth living. So uh, thanks again for coming out. My, my name is Vinny P. Uh, just real quick, uh, so folks know what to buy after the show. Uh, favorite drink? Favorite drink? Favorite drink, yeah. Uh, judging from the last month or so, uh, an old-fashioned. Old-fashioned, all right. Yeah. There you go, Carl. Right, there you go. And you, Brett. And you. Uh, margarita. All right. There you go, folks. Thanks again. Oh, once again, uh, thank you for coming to Seattle. Uh, my question for you, Sam, um, you've encouraged the scientific community to investigate moral norms for behavior, but it seems to be in conflict with your beliefs about free will. Um, if there's no free will and decision-making is an illusion and we lack moral agency, it sounds like you're saying we ought to behave a certain way, but we're not in control of our behavior. And I was wondering how you consolidate this. And, yeah. for, and for Brett, um, moral, or sorry, um, metaphorical truth I was wondering if you could speak to why religious beliefs and practices get a pass as being adaptive in hindsight, but um, instead of just not simply wiping out their adherence over time. Wait, I don't get the question yet. Oh, so it sounded like from my understanding of your metaphorical truth that holding a truth has beneficial value and you described how religious beliefs and practices were adaptive over time for certain time periods and areas. I'm wondering why they get that valuing of being adaptive in hindsight rather than just not having wiped out. Like, for example, 
uh, disease, understanding of disease, and religions had that very wrong compared to germ theory. And how can you how can you ascribe some kind of adaptive value to that? Thank you. So quickly, you don't need free will for life to have a moral character. I mean, all I all you need for morality, in my view, is a difference between abject, pointless, and unendurable misery and its opposite, right? So in, insofar as those are, there's, there's a spectrum of experience on offer, then what we have is a, a navigation problem. And it's not a matter of agents who are ultimately authoring themselves and, and unmoved movers navigating that space. We just need a causal structure that, that causes conscious minds to get buffeted in that space. So the fact that there's something that could make you much less happy than you are now, and the fact that there's something that could make you much happier than you are now, that will, that you, will, you will be helplessly interested in that you know, through no free will of your own. And you'll be, you're constantly impinged upon by various influences, you know, ideas and sensations and civil wars, whatever it is that comes to your door, it, it will matter insofar as it can really change your state. And it will seem wrong if your neighbor is you know, burning a fire in their backyard and the smoke is going directly in your window, well, then that will seem bad to you because in, you, you find breathing smoke intolerable at a certain point. And so we affect each other. And again, there's no, there's no free will necessary to develop a, a real concern to create modes of behavior and norms and ideas and systems that allow us to be much, much happier than not. That's the sphere of value without there being any ultimate responsibility for being who you are. Oh. At some point, I'd like to talk free will. Yeah, that'll you. be the next podcast. Yes, uh, <laughs> or over drinks or something. But I do wonder if, if uh, I'm not convinced of this yet, but I wonder if evolution is not the Waterloo for your point about free will. Um, both the deterministic version and the non-deterministic version. So anyway, maybe we should hash that out yep. at some point. Yep. Um, your, your question um, points to a couple things. One, we think that evolution prepares creatures to fit their environments better. That's not actually what it does. It prepares creatures to fit the environments of their ancestors better. And it looks like it prepares them for the environments that they're in because those environments tend very much to look like the environments of their ancestors, which is why the whole thing works. When it doesn't work is when you face an environment that doesn't look anything like your ancestors. Then you, you have all of this accumulated stuff and it's ill-suited to the circumstances that it finds itself in. The example you pick is, is the perfect one, really, germ theory of disease. The fact that... Um, biblical texts did any good on this front at all is amazing. And it basically says pretty much what I'm suggesting, is that a, an imprecise description of how you should um, think about uh, sanitation is way better than nothing. And so those things got written into these religious texts and are with us to this day. But you'd, you'd be foolish to use those beliefs in lieu of a sophisticated uh, medical view based on the germ theory of disease. So it's time to jettison the primitive view and replace it with one that is mechanistic and, and, and precise. Um, so uh, the, the primacy of the 
literal view in the present has to do with the fact that we are in a much better position to understand those details. At the same time, what we are not in a good position to do is to go through religious texts and say, what is the value of each of these beliefs that we can know which ones are safe to jettison, which ones are now not only no longer true but maybe dangerous, and which ones are serving some hidden purpose that we have yet to recognize, and therefore, in jettisoning them, we may do harm to ourselves. That's, that's, a, that's a genuinely difficult problem, um, but I do think it's one that we have to face. Thank you. Okay, last question. I feel some pressure going last, so no I've done pressure. my, my very best. Okay. Um, I often find myself discussing political issues with people who I find too concerned with the antics of, for example, evergreen students. So, um, basically, how concerned do you think we should be about this idea, and how representative do you find it as the values of the left overall? There is real diversity of opinion about how widespread a problem this is. So someone like Jonathan Haidt, he thinks it's a huge problem. But there are others who think these stories are being amplified by social media and the focus of, of the real media once it gets going, but we're talking about outliers in, in every case. It's, got, it's Yale, it's, it's Evergreen, it's Middlebury, but mo most colleges most of the time would find this totally foreign to them. So I've seen this perspective spreading, especially in the last two weeks, interestingly, the idea that we are overly focused on these anomalies. And I don't believe it um, for various reasons. One, because it came after me, and so it's very real. Uh, but the interesting thing is that Heather and I taught at Evergreen for 15 years before this happened. This only began to bubble up in our lives in the last year and a half that we were there. It was invisible to us before that. But then it was, force, it was forceful enough to make um, the, the college inhospitable so that we had to leave. And I believe that this is why that... People are well-intentioned, and they are reporting what they see, but the fact that over in one quadrant of the college you're not seeing these um, movements take hold doesn't mean it's not happening. And I do believe the, the academy is in jeopardy. At the very least, we can say that. These ideas are alive on virtually every campus, and they are forceful. They come with a strategy that functions, and they are now shifting policy. So it would be hard to overrate that danger. On the other hand... The question, really, you have two lefts. You have the authoritarian left and you have the libertarian left. And the authoritarian left is very muscular at the moment. It's, it's uh, shifting the narrative and it is uh, wielding a great deal of power. But it is also actually invigorating the libertarian left. And by libertarian, I don't mean economic libertarian. I mean people who value liberty as maybe the, the highest human value. So that libertarian left is suddenly being ejected from the academy, from the narrative, and it is being stigmatized. In my case, you know, like everybody else who's had this happen, I've been painted as sympathetic with the alt-right or a darling of the alt-right, and this is just like preposterous given um, my, my own progressive view of the world. But everybody has this. It's perfectly standard. So what I'm getting at is that the left has been anemic for almost my entire life. I'm almost 50. And the, the left has been almost absent from the stage. Suddenly, I'm seeing life over on the libertarian left, where people have been ejected from 
the mainstream and are beginning to think about what to do next. How do we revive progressive ideals in a manner that's up-to-date and makes sense and isn't authoritarian? So I'm actually a bit hopeful about this, that a left I haven't seen in a very long time is beginning to reform, and that's, that's pretty exciting. Mm. Nice. Well, it's, um, again, it's, it's really an honor to be here. It's, it's just uh, well, one of the things that brings me real joy at an event like this. It doesn't always happen. But to bring out someone who I know not everyone in the room, I mean, none of you were expecting, and perhaps many of you didn't know who Brett was two hours ago, but to bring out somebody who's just so good at what he does, uh, it's really, it's fantastic. It's, it's, Thank you, Brett. Thanks so much, Sam. This has been wonderful. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.